We are going through the book of Revelation. Right now we've been, I'm not sure what number this study is, but we're going chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the book of Revelation for one reason. And that's because as believers, we want to have an understanding of the things to come. We want to understand what is going to happen in the last days. And so we're in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation that gives us those things. We're in uh, chapter 16 this morning, if you'll turn there, chapter 16, verses 8 to 21. I titled this morning's message, The Seven Bowls of God's Wrath, Part 2. We're probably in one of the most hard-to-take chapters in the book of Revelation because we're in this third set of judgments that really are very intense. And it's going to be a time that's going to come upon this earth, upon this world, upon mankind. It is going to be very trying days. I shared last week that the bowl judgments, that they're being poured out in the second half of the tribulation period. Remember, there's seven-year period of time. The second half is where we find these bowl judgments. Each of these bowl judgments, very uh, specific judgments, uh, being poured out, and it's referred to as God's wrath upon this earth. In chapter 16, we have all of those seven bold judgments being poured out upon this earth. And one of the words that we see actually throughout the whole book of Revelation is the word great. And we might say this is a great book, but many times when we're talking about the word great, it speaks of things that are attached to these plagues, against, uh, attached to these judgments that are going to come upon this earth. When you see the word great throughout the Bible even, 66 times we find this word in the book of Revelation. It's the Greek word magus, and it can speak of something of a measurement. It can speak of intensity. It can speak of rank and authority. It can speak of a man who is small or great. And it can also speak of something large or something that is great in magnitude. And so we see these various times, actually nine of those times are in this 16th chapter of Revelation. We will read this morning, starting in verse 8, we're going to read about a great heat. And then in verse 12, we're going to read about the great river Euphrates. Verse 14, the great day of God Almighty. Verse 18, a great earthquake. In verse 19, a great city. And also great Babylon. In verse 21, great hail. And also in 21, a plague that is exceedingly great. Our text last week in verses 1 to 7 
we read that the first bowl would be poured out upon the earth. The second bowl was poured out upon the sea. The third bowl will be poured out upon the rivers and the springs of water. And today we're going to look at that fourth bowl being poured out. It's going to be poured out upon the sun. And the fifth is going to be poured out upon the throne of the beast. The sixth bowl is poured out on the great river Euphrates. And the seventh bowl poured out into the air. Look at your Bibles at chapter 16, verse 8. This is the fourth angel now who is going to pour out his bowl. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. This fourth bowl, it affects the sun. And however that happens, we don't know, but the, the sun in some way is going to become much hotter than normal. Who created the sun, by the way? Who created it all? Who has power and control over everything in our world today, including the sun? We know that the sun, we're told, is going to scorch men with fire. It's going to scorch men with great heat. And I'm not sure exactly, maybe it's going to be that protective ozone layer that's by this time that it's destroyed. And it's allowing this heat to come upon man. Or maybe it's just simply going to be God increasing the heat that comes forth from the sun. We don't know. But Jesus said one of the signs, this is the parallel to Matthew chapter 24. In Luke 21, 25, Jesus said, there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the, and in the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. These were the signs that Jesus said would appear before his second coming to this earth. But here's the hard part that we read in our verse this morning. This plague that is being poured out upon people, this heat that man is going to experience, it says that the people, that they would not repent. In other words, they, they, in the moment, they would not repent, but instead they blasphemed the name of God. They did not repent. And it doesn't say that they could not repent. It says that they did not repent. And these are some of the, maybe the hardest words for us to wrap our head around. When I think of these things that are going to be coming down upon this earth, you would think the normal reaction would be that they would be calling out for mercy from God to save them, to 
keep them from these things that are coming upon them, but they did not repent. It shows you how hard the heart can be. How man can harden his heart and continue to harden his heart so that he cannot repent. He goes on. And John sees this vision in verse 10 of this fifth angel. This fifth angel has poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom, we're told, became full of darkness. I got a picture of that, by the way. Do you have that picture? Is that it? See that? It became full of darkness. And we're told that they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed, again, the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. Again, they did not repent of their deeds. I believe this is going to be literal darkness. It's not going to be figurative. It's not going to be spiritual darkness, though the world is in spiritual darkness. I believe that there is going to be a time of literal darkness. It's going to come upon, we're told, the throne of the beast. And by this time, I believe it's going to encompass the world for a period of time, this global darkness, this period of time where man in the moment, in the time, however long God determines that this world's going to be enveloped with darkness. We're told that in this darkness that they nod their tongues because of the pain. I went on and looked at some pages on the website to see what it's like for somebody that is in total darkness. And it, and it speaks about the people even going crazy over a period of time. I once experienced what I would call total darkness. I was in a cave once up in, in California, up in the uh, Sequoia National Park, this cave system that we went into, and the ranger wanted to give us a feeling of total darkness. There was one light that lit up this big cavern, part of the cavern we were in, and that ranger in the moment took and turned off the light switch and told everybody to stay where they were. He said, put your hand in front of your face like this. You know when you're in a room and it's dark, but you can kind of see the outline? When it's total darkness, there's nothing there. It was the most eerie feeling. Total blackout. Total darkness. The throne of the beast is going to be encompassed with this darkness. Then we come to the sixth angel that pours out his bowl. We'll read in verse 12, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. 
the great river Euphrates, which is still there today, I believe is going to be dried up some way by God. Whether that's supernaturally, whether it's the kings that are stopping the dams and drying up the great river Euphrates because there's a number of dam systems on it today. But somehow, in some way, that river Euphrates is going to be dried up and it's going to prepare the way for an attack that is going to come down upon the nation of Israel. I see these kings of the east, as it says here, being different from the 200 million demons that we read about in Revelation 9-6. I believe that those are a demonic army where I believe this is going to be a literal army of nations that are going to come against Israel. These kings of the east, uh, they come from those nations that are going to be east of the river Euphrates. And there's a whole list of nations that you could put into that list. Assyria and Iraq and Iran and some people take it as far as China and all these India and all these nations that are going to need to cross over this land mass where the river Euphrates is and make their way towards Israel. It could be that the kings of the east that are spoken of here might be not just the kings from the east, but the ten kings that are under the authority of the Antichrist that we read about back in Revelation chapter 13. There's going to be a revived Roman Empire that is going to rise up in the last days, in the tribulation period. There's going to be these ten kings, these nations that are going to be formed into a ten-nation confederacy of nations. Ten kings under the authority of the Antichrist. John then says in the sixth judgment that the Antichrist is now going to gather the armies. How is he going to do that? Look at verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs, and I'll say these are deceptive signs, deceptive miracles, which go out to the kings of the earth, there they are, and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. These three unclean spirits, who John says look like frogs, are the spirits of demons, according to verse 14. Frogs, to the Jew, were considered an unclean thing. They were unclean by the law of Moses. They were repulsive. To a Jew. But to the Egyptians, they were revered. They even had a frog goddess that they worshiped. The Egyptians did. 
Again, we have this allusion to the verse in Exodus chapter 8, verse 2, where Moses stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up onto the land of Egypt during one of the plagues that God put upon Pharaoh. We're told in verse 13 that these three frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And we know that the dragon is another name for who? For Satan. It comes out of the mouth of Satan, really, or the devil, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And so what we have, we might call here a satanic trinity that goes out to deceive the kings of the earth. And he's going to do it by performing the Antichrist or the false prophet, by performing these signs or these deceptive miracles of which the kings of the earth and really the whole world is going to buy into. Satan will use the Antichrist. He will use the false prophet to be the ones that will gather these armies for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. How he's going to do it, it doesn't tell us. It says he's going to be performing signs in front of them, some way that's going to mesmerize these kings and draw them into this great battle. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, as it draws near, many unbelievers will not know when the end is coming. This world is going to be have a, a mix, like it does today, of unbelievers and believers. Now the believers during the tribulation time are going to be those that get saved during the tribulation period because those of us that are believers now, I believe, are going to be raptured up into heaven before the seven-year tribulation begins. But there are going to be those that are going to be saved during the tribulation period. We know that the unbelievers, those that would not repent, those who take the mark of the beast, those who follow after Satan are going to be the ones that are going to be unclear, uncertain about the sign of Jesus' second coming. But I do believe that those that are believers, those who come to know Christ, those who come to know what the, the scriptures say, even during the tribulation period, I believe that they're going to be able to look for these signs and know when that second coming of Jesus Christ is near. It's going to be when they see the, the kings of the earth gathering together, coming down ready to come upon Israel during that time. And then we see in verse 15, these red letters. If you have a red letter Bible, verse 15 just is set in this place. It's almost like uh, just a, another word of hope that we see. Look what it says. Behold, these are Jesus' words. He says, I'm coming as a thief. And I believe that the unsaved are going to miss this clear sign. 
Blessed is he who watches. And I believe it's speaking of these tribulation saints who are going to know that the time is near for his second coming. He says, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. In other words, these tribulation saints are also going to be ones now that are going to have to keep themselves pure from this idolatrous world. They're going to have to, many of them, die for their faith during the tribulation period. But they're going to be standing in that day, just as we are, in those righteous garments of salvation. You see, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, then you stand today in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm coming as a thief, but blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And then in verse 16, we read, and they, speaking and going back to speaking about this satanic trinity, that we read, they gathered them, the nations together, to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. We start verse 16 with the Antichrist gathering his allies to the place called Armageddon. We're told. And we're really never told actually in anywhere in scripture why it is that the nations specifically anyway, why the nations are gathering to this place called Armageddon. But I think that the most reasonable answer for why they will come down to this place of Armageddon is to destroy the nation of Israel, to destroy God's people and to attempt to thwart the promises of God, of Christ's return. By the way, many of us have heard and we call this the Battle of Armageddon. But let me say this, it's not really going to be a battle. It's going to be the nations coming down to battle, but God is going to be the one that is going to intervene at that time and he's going to smite the nations at that time he's going to intervene on behalf of his people Israel in that day and he's going to save Israel from this invading armies that are going to come down there to the battle or to the place of Armageddon we see the word battle in verse 14 which is the Greek word pulmon. And this word actually is better understood not as a single battle, but as a extended engagement of battles. And so when we think of the battle of Armageddon, <clears throat> it's not gonna be just one battle at the end of the tribulation period, but it's gonna be a campaign of a number of battles that are going to take place. That's what I want to be able to give you an understanding of in this passage this morning. Remember in chapter 9, uh, when the sixth trumpet was blown, 
we read that four demonic angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates, they were released and a demonic army of 200 million followed. And then we're told this of that judgment that one third of the remaining population of this earth will be killed by this demonic horde that is going to come from this area of Babylon. The Babylonian Empire was there at the river Euphrates. We're going to read more about that even going forward. But the difference between the sixth trumpet judgment and the sixth bowl judgment is that the sixth trumpet is demonic. 200 million that kill a third of mankind. The sixth bowl judgment is the kings of the east which are the nations east of the Euphrates, Euphrates River that are going to gather to battle for that great day. You see, Israel is in the crosshairs of the nations of this world and many of the nations today. But in that day, they're going to be in the crosshairs. And Satan is going to do everything he can to take God's people out. And whether he believes that lie or whether he's just on a course, he's going to make his way to try and destroy Israel. Now the locations of this campaign of battles is going to extend from Megiddo, which is in the north of Israel, to Edom, which is in the south. And I might have, well, I do have a map up there. There's a map if you can see it. Those of you who are in the back, and you can see the line up at the top and in the middle and at the bottom. So you have the, the Armageddon or Megiddo up at the top. You have Jerusalem on that line in the middle. Probably can't read the, the names. And then on the bottom, you have Edom or Basra. Those are the three battlefronts that are going to be, when we talk about the Battle of Armageddon, it's going to be a campaign of battle that's going to take place in these three locations. This final battle, this final campaign is, uh, it, that we see or up in uh, Megiddo to the north. We read in Revelation chapter 14, verse 19, that in this final campaign, the angel is going to thrust his sickle to the earth He's going to gather the vine and he's going to throw it into the wine press. Remember if you were here when we were in Revelation chapter 14. We read that the wine press is going to be trampled outside the city and the blood is going to come out of the wine press, which will be up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Now the distance between that top line up in Megiddo down to Edom and Basra is about 200 miles. That is the distance that is spoken of here, the blood being up to the horse's bridles. And I don't believe it's probably in the literal sense of blood being four feet deep, though I guess it could be, but I think it's a way of saying the magnitude of the, the bloodlet that is going to happen during these battles. 200 miles long. These battles, and that's why I believe it's from Megiddo to Edom, 200 miles long, that this battlefront is going to take place.
there's going to be these three uh, main fronts that I want to just zero in on briefly. First, I believe that it's going to happen when the Lord comes back to this earth. He's going to come back first to Jerusalem. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. And he's going to, in that time, he's going to be defending Jerusalem. Now remember that this, uh, that Jerusalem or Mount Moriah is the place where the Jewish temple stood. It's where Abraham offered up Isaac. It's the place where Jesus was crucified on the cross. This is the holy city of Jerusalem, the great city of Jerusalem there that Jesus is going to come back to defend Israel in that day. We know that if you look out the east gate, looking down from uh, the Temple Mount, you look down into what is uh, the area uh, called the Kidron Valley. If you go out the east gate, you would go down the Kidron Valley and you would be going east looking up and you would walk up onto the, the Mount of Olives. I've done that before. I've been there and seen how that looks. The Kidron Valley is also referred to and believed in scripture to be the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It'll be the place that the Lord will first return and he will come to defend the city of Jerusalem and his people there. You can read about that, and I'm not, I don't have time to read these texts, but if you're writing, you're writing things down, you can write down Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 to 11, and also Zechariah 14, 2. You can also read about it in Joel chapter 3, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2 to 13. But then we also have the second place that the Lord is going to then go from Jerusalem to Edom, that southern part, that southern area that is south of Jerusalem, known also as Basra, the sheepfold. Edom was the name that was given to Esau in Genesis 25:30, and it's the name of the country settled by his descendants, which were the Edomites. This area, which is modern-day Jordan today, this area of Edom is also the area that we've talked about already, about Petra, that place where I believe that the Jews are going to flee to. During the middle of the tribulation period, they're going to flee out to this area of Basra, this area of Edom, to the area, I believe, or to this stronghold, this place that is there today called Petra, where God is going to preserve them and protect them for a period of time towards the end of the tribulation period. It'll be at the end that the Antichrist and his armies are going to go themselves to Basra, go to Edom, go to Petra, and try to draw out, try to... Uh, again, kill the Jews, and it'll be at that point that God will intervene once again there at Petra in Basra. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 34, verses 1 to 10, and also in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 63. And then the third place 
that most of us are most familiar with is that area that we call Armageddon. It's located on the, the plain of Estralon. It's better known as really the Mount of Megiddo. I think I have a picture uh, of that. You see that mount, that city? It's really a tell. It's really a hill. That is Mount Megiddo. And so when we think of Armageddon, it's really speaking of the Mount of Megiddo, which overlooks the Jezreel Valley. Now, if you go to the next uh, picture, you see that there's this massive valley that's in the northern part of Israel. It's actually 14 by 20 miles long, this area. It's been referred to as the cockpit of the world because it's seen as one of the, the most strategic battlefields on the face of the planet. It's going to be where these nations are going to come, these kings of the east and these, these other kings are going to bring and come to that place that we call Armageddon. Again, this is going to be, I believe, at the final end. This is going to be what we're going to read when we get to Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus Christ is going to pierce the clouds and we're going to come back with the Lord and, and, and the Lord is going to, at that time, smite the nations there in the battle of Armageddon. This is a summary, if this could help you in your mind, of the events that are going to transpire. Seven years of tribulation are now coming to a close. The seventh week of Daniel is about to be completed. The time of the Gentiles is about to be fulfilled. The day of the Lord is coming to a climax. The final outpouring of God's wrath is about to be complete. The sharp sickle has been thrust into the earth and the vines are being gathered. The grapes are now fully ripe and the vat is full. The Lord is about to step into the wine press to trample the grapes and the blood is beginning to flow. A remnant of Israel is about to be delivered from Edom. The nations are being judged and Babylon has fallen. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is about to return and ride in and make war. The beast and the false prophet are about to be cast into the lake of fire. Satan is about to be bound for a thousand years. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. To me, I just wrote out a summary of the events. This is at the end. It's where we're at here in this 16th chapter into the end of the book of Revelation. And then in verse 17, we read then or finally, the seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air. And John hears this loud voice come out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. It's finished. The seventh bowl, the last set of three judgments. 
And now this seventh bowl being poured out into the air. The first bowl was poured on the earth. The second was on the sea. The third was on the rivers and the springs. The fourth was on the sun. The fifth was on the throne of the beast and his kingdom. The sixth was on the great river Euphrates. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 2, he refers to Satan as the prince of the power of what? Of the air. The world, by this time, is going to be completely controlled by Satan. The demonic influence that's going to be in this, on this earth during this time, during this period of time, is going to be great. It's at this point that the angel pours out his bowl into the air. And John hears this loud voice coming out of the temple and from, and, and from the throne saying, it is done. Remember Revelation 15.8. Remember chapter 15 was the prelude to chapter 16. And we read in verse 8 that no one except for God was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels was complete. There's not going to be any more time of intercession. God is calling out. And now it's this last final outpouring of God's wrath is complete. It's completed those final judgments. It's done. It's finished. We might say that at this point in the 16th chapter of Revelation, we're at the end of the tribulation period. The other chapters that are going to follow are going to be more information. We're going to talk about the, the, the scarlet woman riding the scarlet beast. We're going to talk about Babylon and the details about Babylon as we get into chapter 17 and 18. We're going to talk about the millennial kingdom that's to come. We're going to talk about in chapter 19 the second coming of Jesus Christ, but also the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and our reigning with him. But here we read, it is done. What's interesting is that remember that John was one of the disciples that stood at the foot of the cross. And he heard those final words of Jesus on that day. That when that work of redemption was being complete. And he heard those words from the mouth of Jesus. It is finished. And now John hears this last bowl in this last bowl of judgment. John hears again the final words, it is done. God's completed the time of judgment upon this earth. In verse 18, we read, And there were noises, and thunderings, and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now, I know we have a number of people here from California. Raise your hand if you are. Yeah, oh, God, I didn't realize we had that many. We're surrounded by people from California. 
The talk of anyone from California is, when's the big one coming? When are we going to experience the big one? And I'm going to say that this is going to be the ultimate big one. This is going to be an earthquake that this earth has never or man has never seen or experienced before. And there's been a lot of earthquakes throughout history. This final outpouring of God's wrath in verse 18. It's going to bring forth two main catastrophic events. One is this great earthquake. And the other is great hailstones that are going to fall upon mankind. A great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. I believe these to be literal. I believe these events, these judgments to be literal. I believe that they're going to be supernatural. They're going to come from the hand of God. And we know that God has used throughout history, he's used earthquakes to get the tension of people. To let them know that there's something up there greater than themselves is pretty powerful when this world begins to feel the earth shake. The prophet Haggai prophesied of a great shaking which would involve all nations prior to their recognition of Christ and his return in his Shekinah glory. Haggai 2.6 reads, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more I will shake the heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 19 we read, Now the great city was divided into three parts. That great city, meaning the city of Jerusalem, it was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. The cities of the nations are the Gentile nations. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. This is God's wine of wrath against Babylon. It's possible that the earthquake that we're reading about here in verse 19 is going to be when Jesus puts his foot down on the Mount of Olives, when he comes back in that campaign of battles, he sets his foot on the Mount of Olives when he comes to defend Israel. That there's going to be this shaking that is going to go on on this earth. We read in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet 
will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. What kind of earthquake does that take? To split the Mount of Olives. To create this divide, this splitting of the earth. Now the great city, Jerusalem, was divided into three parts. This division into three parts, I don't even think it's a judgment from God that is creating this division. As a matter of fact, it's going to be something that's going to change the geography of Jerusalem. And you can read and we'll look at other parts when we get into the millennial kingdom. Remember that Jerusalem during this time is going to be preserved. The city of Jerusalem. It's going to be the place where God is going to set up his kingdom here on earth. The millennial reign of Christ is going to be from this place. It's going to change the geography of the land. Jerusalem alone. Of all the great cities of the earth. Is going to survive this quake. Which is going to be prepared for that millennial kingdom to come. You and I that know Jesus Christ are going to reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years. But that won't be the case for the Gentile cities. That won't be the case for the nations of the world. We're told that the cities of the nations fell. How global will that be? I think it's going to be a global event. I think it's going to be, I just went on and looked at some of the the, uh, aftermath of this latest quake that just happened in our world. Over 50,000 people now is the number that have died. It's going to be massive. These Gentile nations, they fall. And the reason why they fall is because they have aligned themselves with the Antichrist. Next week, in Revelation chapter 17, in verse 13, we're going to read about these ten Gentile nations that are going to emerge. It says this of them. They're of one mind. And they will give their power and their authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb. The Lamb of God. And the Lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Chosen and faithful. Amen? We're coming back with the Lord. Remember back in Revelation 14, verse 8, we heard the proclamation of the three angels. And in verse 8, we read concerning Babylon and the Gentile nations. This was looking ahead to this time that we're talking about now in chapter 14. Babylon is fallen, fallen, that great city, 
because she, the great harlot, has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Did you know that Babylon is the second most mentioned city in all of the Bible next to Jerusalem? As a matter of fact, it's all the way through the book of Revelation. There's something very significant to this area of Babylon going all the way back to Babel and all the way to the future that God is going to destroy Babylon, literally, I believe, the city of, but also the whole religious system, the whole monetary system, everything that surrounds Babylon. Babylon and all the cities and the nations of this world are going to be devastated by this earthquake in this time. We read, and great Babylon was remembered before God. We also read in verse 20, then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. How big of a of a quake is this going to be? How awesome, how great, how terrible of a time is this going to be that every island fled away and the mountains were not found? Do you remember how the mountains were formed on this earth? Probably. During the great flood, when God flooded this earth, when the whole upheavals of the whole earth broke forth, and the mountains were probably created during that upheaval, during the flood. And now at the very end, God is laying flat every mountain. Every island fled away. And the mountains were not found. I think it's going to be turning it to rubble. And then in verse 21, and great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. And then look what it says again. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail. Since the plague was exceedingly great. It's hard to take in. It's hard to consider the hardness of a man's heart. That in the middle of all this, he would still blaspheme God. And the penalty for blaspheming God was stoning under the Levitical law. And here we have this plague of hail coming down upon mankind. We know that God rained hail on the land of Egypt in Exodus chapter 9. We know also in Joshua 10, 11, that God stoned the Amorites with huge hailstones. And we're told that there were more who died from the hailstones than from the children of Israel who killed with a sword. God supernaturally intervened. We also read that God said to Job 
in chapter 38, verse 22, he says to Job, have you entered the treasury of snow? Or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? God made it all. God can do what he wants. And God is choosing in this time, in this period where man now has come to his final end. There is no repentance. There is no turning to God at this point. Man is simply blaspheming God for the pain and the suffering that they're experiencing. They blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell. Since the plague was exceedingly great. God means what he says. What God says he's going to do. And if you're a Bible believing Christian. If you believe the word of God. I do. And I believe that most of you if not all of you do. Then what we read in our Bibles this morning, it's real. We're not just reading some storybook tale about something that is going to come upon this earth. And we have every reason as a Christian to live godly, to live for the Lord, to be a witness for Jesus Christ. To turn away from our compromise in life. To turn back to the Lord. To say, God, would you forgive me? That I would set my heart right. That I would prepare my heart for that day. Because when the Lord comes back, you don't want to be ashamed in the moment. You want to be in a place, and hopefully we'll all be in that place, where we're saying, Lord, even so, come quickly, Lord. I'm ready for your return now. Instead of one of those that we're saying, I'm not ready for this yet. But that we would ready our hearts. That we would be watching and ready for the Lord's return. This is what grips my heart. This is what I think about when I think about those who don't know Christ. God, would you help me to be a more vocal witness for you? That I would be unashamed of my faith. That I'd be willing to step out onto the water and open my mouth for you. Because I believe what I'm reading here. And that day will come. To think of a time when there will be no possibility of repentance. But just to blaspheme God. It's hard to end on that note with communion. On one hand it is. On the other hand, we have much to rejoice in, don't we? When you consider what Christ has done. When you consider that when he gave it all up on the cross. And he said it is finished. That redemptive 
work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The shedding of His blood for your sin and my sin. So that we could sit here today and know that you're saved. To know that you have eternal life. To know that you're not going to go through this tribulation period. We have much to rejoice in. and So I'm going to ask that the worship team come up. Lead us in a song. And as we walk forward, I'm going to ask that you'll just walk forward and take the cup and bread back to your seat. And we'll all partake together. Remember, communion is koinonia. It's partakership. It's fellowship with one another. We're gathering this morning around the communion table. Because we have this commonness together. We're all sitting in this place, Lord willing, because we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, come and see me. Walk up. I'll stand right down here. Walk up. We'll pray together. You can receive Christ in your heart. You can repent and ask God to forgive and cleanse you of your sin and come into your heart even this morning. And so let's all, let's all stand. This is a time for us to set our hearts right before the Lord. Those of us that are Christians, do a little soul searching. As you're rejoicing in this communion table, do some soul searching. Say, God, would you search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me? Would you show me the areas, Lord, that I need to get right before you? Would you convict my heart and that I wouldn't be afraid of your conviction, but that I would run to you and I would ask you to forgive and to cleanse and to restore my relationship with you? And so as... Kyle leads us in worship here. Let's set our hearts right. Let's walk down. Let's take the cup back to our seat. And then we'll all partake of the cup and the bread together.